0: trust the movement, I negate the chaos, uplift the negative, I'll show up at the table again and again. Welcome to Grassroot Ohio, conversations with everyday people working on important issues here in Columbus and all around Ohio. I'm Carolyn Harding, and today I'm talking with Melissa McFadden, author of the newly released memoir, Walking the Thin Black Line, Confronting Racism in the Columbus division of police. Last Friday, December 4, a young 23-year-old black man, Casey Goodson Jr., was shot and killed by the hands of a 17-year veteran of the Franklin County Sheriff's Office, Deputy Jason Meade. As Casey arrived home from the dentist where his grandma, little brother, and extended, extended family were waiting, this heartbreaking atrocity is not an isolated incident here in Columbus, Ohio. No, Recent years we have lost Henry Green, 23 years old, Tyree King, 13 years old, Kareem Ali Nadir Jones, 30 years old, and Julius Tate, 16, to police gun violence. We are all asking why. Lieutenant McFadden cannot comment on Casey Goodson's investigation as she is still an active police officer with the Columbus Division of Police. But her story can help us understand what set the culture and climate within law enforcement in Central Ohio, and in her experience, the Columbus Division of Police. Melissa McFadden is an activist and author who spent 24 years as a police officer in the Columbus, Ohio Division of Police. McFadden was born and raised by her mom in the cold country of Southern West Virginia with a strong sense of justice. She always wanted to be an officer. She entered the US Air Force right out of high school to gain the training she thought would give her a shot at realizing her dream. Even as a trained military special police officer, the black girl from the hillbilly state had to fight her way into the Columbus Police Academy in 1996. She immediately saw discrimination and bigotry she had never experienced before. She didn't know it was her job to fix it, but with her belief in God, her military training and her love of learning, she set out to write decades of wrongs perpetrated by Columbus police against the black community, which as she quickly found out included black officers. Welcome. And thank congrats- you for having me. Thank you and congratulations on your book, your memoir. Thank you. you're not you're an activist with twenty four years as a police officer, most activists face officers as f- for instance, this summer, Black Lives Matter protests. Um, the activists were facing officers in riot gear who used mace, pepper spray, rubber bullets, and more. Can you tell us what was your is your progression from police officer or cop? to activist?
1: Well, like I said in my book, I've been dealing with the racist systemic culture from the time I got out of training academy until recently, till even today, you know? So it's just constant having battles to fight. I found myself in battles constantly, almost every day with something happening, something. And I just started learning the rules, and then calling them on the rules because they would, when it came to the rules, they wouldn't apply them to me fairly. And then I started looking around and seeing other African American officers not being applied, the rules apply fairly to them. And I just, just some of the things that we were taught the indoctrination like, there's an indoctrination when you are in the training academy and when you get out and you go into the field, and then you go to through your advanced training after you get out of the academy and you have to keep training every year. I found that when we're in training, they are exposing us to implicit bias even more. So everybody has implicit bias where you're subconsciously, you don't know that you have this, but it's because of your experiences. So when you're indoctrinated into this culture of policing, the enemy is the black male. The enemy is the black suspect. Because for many years, we used to shoot at black targets until like in the last maybe 10 years or so, they changed the targets to gray. So if you think about it, every year we shoot four times a year. We shoot our guns. And when you're shooting that weapon, you're aiming down there at a black target. And if you get into black, then you get more points as opposed to if you get on the white side outside of the target. So for years and years and years, until like maybe 15 years ago or so. That we the people before me and myself and other people that's still on the division had been shooting at black targets. Mm-hmm. The way they do our training, like in-service training, the videos of the suspects that they give us. So they use like videos, real videos of suspects getting arrested to train us on what not to do, what to do. And if you look at those videos in the past, they've always been African American suspects. So if all you show officers, African-American suspects shooting at black targets. Mm -hmm. If that's all they know over the course of their careers, then they're only going to think when they see a black person that they're already on the criminal element, Mm -hmm. a part of that element. So it's an indoctrination that we go through. When you start from the training academy on until you finish your career there. Even I had to catch myself one day, I was driving on East side in my cruiser and I saw three male blacks walking down the street Actually, they were walking on the sidewalk and it was in the middle of the day. And I looked and, and thought to myself, I'm like, what are they doing? And I had to catch myself just because they're walking on the sidewalk, three male blacks. I'm questioning what they're doing. They, were, they weren't doing anything. So even to me, I had to question myself and why I was prejudging them already to think they're up to something, up to something no good. You know, they're up to criminal activity is because the way they have indoctrinated me from the beginning. That's, uh, how it is. And so throughout my time in the division, I learned how to stick up for myself. And in that time period, other officers would come to me and ask me to help them. So behind the scenes, I would help them tell them, okay, this is the rules. This is what you need to do. So I would help others. And it just spiraled from there. I I didn't realize that I was going to be the one that actually uh, faced the division, Uh, but he trained me well for it. God trained me well for that position because I was in internal affairs. I was in training. I know my rules very well, and so when it was time for me to step up and fight, I had all the tools I needed. So he prepared me to be victorious in what I'm doing. So I've always been inside fighting for what's right. Um, it just seems like after Chief Jackson left, not saying it was correct then, but after he left, things got much worse mm-hmm. and very, very out in the open, overt racism, overt discrimination when it came to discipline. Um, black officers should be discipline harsher, female officers should be harsher, the same conduct, or even the white officer's conduct, might be even worse. So those things bothered me, and um I just had to—I just couldn't sit back and not let anything just let it continue. And every step of the way, I've always spoke up for what's right.
0: You're pretty brave because yeah. you probably had um, pushback. Um, what was the retaliation like when you did speak up? Well, when I first when
1: I spoke up the very first time, I talk about in my book when I was in the, a cat, uh, um, FTL field training. Once you get at the academy, you go through field training where you actually do on the job training with a field training officer. And I spoke up about an illegal search that I saw. And as a result of that, they tried to send me to an additional coaching as punishment, additional six weeks as punishment. But I spoke up against it and they and I said, that's retaliation and they didn't do it. But as time went on, um, I kept sticking up for people, sticking up for people. And the most recent time was when I was in uh, in 2017, 16, I stuck up for a female black officer the foul discrimination charges. And that's when they came after me with an investigation. And since 2017, believe it or not, I've been investigated eight times, eight different times since since 2017. And you're still in the force. And I'm still on the force. Yes.
0: So how do you, how do you manage? Because um, you were the second black woman to achieve rank of lieutenant, the highest rank ever achieved by a black woman in the history of the Columbus Division of Police. That's that's impressive. So you, you are speaking out, you're getting retaliation, but you're still progressing.
1: Yes, because the only way it's going to work if somebody from the inside tries to fix it. Because for many years, citizens have been protesting, complaining about police behavior, and nothing has ever changed. Like DOJ came 20 years ago and said that African-American community are getting more force used on them than any other community. But nothing was done about it, nothing. So fast forward, 2019, the matrix report said the same exact thing. For 20 years, the black people in the community are getting force used at its disproportionate rate than other races in the city. But people yell about it and they scream about it, but nothing's ever done. So me being inside, I if I can change it from the inside That's what I'm trying to do. And that's why I haven't left yet. That's why I endure the retaliation, because I have to be inside to see it. Because it's easy to tell the citizens everything's fine. When you're sitting outside, when you're outside, they could tell you anything. But I'm inside. I see it every day. So that's why I stay, because I'm trying to make changes for the people that are currently there and the people that's coming after me. Because it's awful inside. And how they treat our citizens on the outside is even worse. So that's why I stay, and that's why I endure all the retaliation. Like I said, currently I got three current investigations right now, and those are because of my book I wrote. But the five previous ones was not, you know. So they're all independent investigations, and no no discipline. So it just tells you how much they retaliate, and that's why you have a lot of officers that can't speak up because they know retaliation is swift on the division.
0: Right, and so how are you managing managing to stay? with your job and still speak out, are you speaking out for the other people, of um, officers of color and um, more vulnerable um, communities within the um, police force?
1: Oh, definitely. And how I can speak out is because I went to law school and I got a law degree. And when I did that, I found that the rule that they have in place that we cannot speak out, they have a rule that says we can't speak out against the division. We can't speak negatively about another division employee. They have that rule in place for many years, and many people follow that rule because they think they'll get in trouble. So they don't speak out. Even you got retirees that are still scared to speak out to this day. But when I went to law school, the one good thing that I learned is I can speak out as long as it's a matter of public concern. And boy, they should have never told me that because I've been speaking out ever since, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But as long as it's a matter of public concern, I I can speak out, which is like racism, discrimination, discrimination things of that nature. To me, it's like I consider myself a whistleblower that I'm speaking out against the the corrupt system that we have, how they train us, how they treat us as African-Americans inside as well as outside. They not only mistreat black people, but they mistreat poor people as well. If you don't have the resources, that money to get a lawyer, you're not getting the same treatment. It's just what it is. And that's reality. And um, that trust but the police department is just not there because they don't want it to be there because they don't build and try to make trust happen. They do propaganda where they take photo ops on certain events. But the whole spirit of community service policing, we don't have that. Because if that's the case, it will reflect it throughout the whole division, not just certain units. That's jobs to reach out to the
0: community. So my question, Melissa, is. The culture the the at, um, atmosphere comes down from the top, basically the someone setting the culture. who is setting the culture and how can we make significant change so that the police for, police force is there to serve and protect and to empower instead of you know um, instead of like prejudice and um, put down and and um, bullying (laughs) the culture is like it starts at the top it
1: starts as our leadership and if you notice Columbus police has never had an outside chief until recently they weren't allowed to have an outside chief so when you have people that's been in this system and indoctrinated in this system for 30 years and that person becomes chief they're going to adopt the same thing that they know what they know we all revert back to our training and what they know Then you got the next one that comes up, been there for 30 years. They're going to just continue on with the same practices, the same status quo. We need someone from the outside that is progressive and willing to to make that change because the people that are there now, the leaders that are there now, there's only like maybe one that I can think of or two that might, if we need somebody from the inside, that might actually step up and do what's right. But the other ones are too concerned about if they're liked by their people under them. They don't want to be disliked. So I walk in the room, I'm always disliked. So I'm used to it. So they can take pointers from me how to get used to it. It's easy to get (laughs) used to it. After a while, you get used to it. So, but they don't want, they don't, they want to be liked. So they don't want to make people upset underneath them by making rules that will prevent them from mistreating
0: other people. They don't want to do that because they're more concerned about their base. This is Carolyn Harding with Grassroot Ohio. And today I'm talking with Melissa McFadden, She is the author of Walking the Thin Black Line, Confronting Racism in the Columbus Division of Police. Um, I'd like to continue that that conversation because um, there is usually the power. There is the power and is it the governor? Is it the mayor? Is it the FOP, uh, Fraternal Order of Police, the union? Is it um, the Columbus Partnership, the money? Where Who is making sure that things aren't changing, that we keep bringing up people from inside and that we don't bring in someone new with a new perspective and a healthier perspective? Well, ultimately,
1: the mayor makes a decision when it comes to the chief. He went out and fought to get a chief to be able to come from the outside, even though this last time he did not um, choose a chief from the outside, which I think was not the best idea. But the fact that he's standing up to the FOP I think that's excellent because I've never seen anybody do that. So the people that hold the power to make things better is the chief of police, because the mayor's not a police. So people would talk about how this last recent case where BCI wasn't called in for the shooting, right? Mm -hmm. And some people want to blame the mayor, but the mayor wasn't at the scene that night. The chief knew about it that night. So the chief could have made that call that night. Um, The chief has a lot of power when it comes to internal activities. Um, internal rules, internal policies. He's uh, he's got absolute power, basically. Um, The FOP is a big factor in the power structure. They prevent a lot of things from happening. They protect a lot of rogue officers, Um, but they they do, and they have a lot of money, and they use it. So they are a big factor in how they want to keep the status quo, because they're all police. They're all Columbus police, basically. I mean, there's a bunch of Uh, Reynoldsburg, all these different agencies around us in the union. But the people that actually run the board and run is is Columbus police, for the most part. The president is Columbus police, the vice president is Columbus police. So they run the board of the FOP Capital City Lodge 9, and they have a lot of power. So we need to start doing something with that contract. And like right now, they're in the contract negotiations. We need to get some of those rules taken out that help bring back officers that have done wrong by citizens. The chief needs to start looking at, instead of using uses of force as a minor issue, if you use force improperly on a citizen, it should be a major issue. It should be a deterrent. You should not be okay with using force on a person unnecessarily and be willing to take discipline for it because the discipline doesn't mean anything. The accountability piece is not there. That's the problem. And the chief can fix that. The chief can fix that.
0: Does he have the will? I mean, is that just not going to happen while he's the chief or is he willing and able to shift and become a better chief? I don't
1: know. I mean, he's been interim chief for going on a year now and I have not seen any changes inside for the betterment of the black officers inside and the females inside. I have not seen anything for the betterment of the African-American community, the use of force. I haven't seen it. That's what I'm looking for. And the way I would know that he's changed something is in the book. We have directives. It's not a rule unless it's in the book, basically. Once it gets in that book, that becomes a rule. That's what that's our standard. And that's what we follow. Everybody follows those rules. So that's how I know what's happening, and what's not happening, because I look at the rules and unless the rules change, it's going to stay the same. And you're going to see the constant mistrust in the division of police.
0: Okay, with the committee. Isn't, um, isn't it the mayor who appoints or, or did we actually elect the chief? Did, wasn't it the mayor who appointed the chief?
1: The mayor appoints the chief. Right.
0: So basically, Mayor Ginther decided who would be in charge. Mm-hmm. And there's probably some influences that are telling Mayor Ginther what to do as well.
1: Right. Seattle. Uh, probably, but I don't know because I, I I can't, I don't have knowledge of that. So I can't really speak to who those people are. If, they're, if they exist, I'm pretty sure they probably do, but the safety director is over the chief. So between the mayor and the safety director, they both determine who the chief is going to be. And yes, the mayor did pick the chief and the mayor does have influence over how the chief interacts with the community and what he does in that sense. But ultimately, when we talk about how, because the chief is the expert, he's the police. So the mayor relies on the chief a lot because he's not police and neither is the safety director. So they rely on him a lot, but the mayor does have the authority and ability to make chief Quinlan do certain things if he wants done.
0: Okay. All right. So I want to continue on Um, in your chapter five of your book. It's entitled what my training officer didn't tell me. Can you tell us some of those things that you discovered as you became an officer that you weren't, that weren't prepared for.
1: Well, I wasn't prepared for the little little uh, unwritten rules because I was military so I was about rule driven, I'm rule oriented. So the unwritten rules I wasn't prepared for. I wasn't prepared for the cover up culture. I wasn't prepared that that you're not supposed to tell on someone if they do something wrong. I wasn't I wasn't prepared for that. I didn't understand that. Um I wasn't prepared for how they teach us, like I had a training incident where they described the person that they were gonna pull out of this car um, as a felon, a felony person that robbed the bank. Even though those were white instructors, the way they described the person, saying he had a head on backwards, his music's loud, things of the nature, and then we pulled him out the car. They told him to come out here, boy, get out here, boy. I, it was a year one, I think, during that time. And I was just so shocked because if they're calling people boys in training, what are you teaching your students? How are you teaching your students? So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't expect that. I, I don't know. I just did not. I didn't expect that because I felt that we are sworn to uphold the law, and that we should. I didn't expect that cops would be as liars. They lie a lot. They will lie on a police report. They will lie about incidents. They will lie on each other. Um, I wasn't expecting that. I, I was, I was surprised that they would lie like that it's significantly lies uh, a life-changing lies lies that are significant not small little lies that who ate my potato salad or who you know who ate the bag of chips out the refrigerator these are big life-changing lies that they tell that alters people's life for the rest of their life you know
0: and they're not they're not held accountable
1: they're not held accountable um not at all they're not held accountable um if you're caught lying then they do try to hold you accountable, depending on who you are. I did not know there's a lot of favoritism inside, nepotism. There's a lot of that, a lot of favoritism. And so people go along with stuff so they can get become favorites, so they can get the special assignments, so they can get things. And so as a result, people get mistreated. Citizens get mistreated. So when you, when you be in internal affairs and you're investigating these officers and they come in and all of them don't recall what happened, you know that's not truthful. They do recall what happened. They just don't want to tell you. So it's a lot of things that I learned that my FTO didn't train, train me on because there's a lot of unwritten rules. Um, like if you have somebody hit you as an officer, somebody strikes you and you strike them back and you arrest them and put them in handcuffs. It's not uncommon for the sergeant to come up in the past to say, the next time somebody hits you, I expect them to be going to the hospital. So not that you should only hit them necessary to get them to stop what they're doing, but they want you to put them in the hospital because they, how dare they hit an officer? You know, that's not okay. It used to be, if you're running, if you run away from an officer, when they catch you, they're going to, they're going to hurt you. That's what the, the unwritten rule is. It's just common knowledge. When, when you catch them, you, you better get them because they ran. How dare you make me run? So those things that I did not know about that from my FTO, I did not learn about those things until after I got out on my own and started seeing. little unwritten rules that go on and it's nothing that they actually say and some of the things they say but it's in a way that you're not they're not directly telling you that you need to lie or they're not directly telling you that you need to well they said next time they're going to the hospital but they don't tell you you need to beat them down they just make that little statement next time they better be going to the hospital that kind of stuff
0: open racism like um, white supremacy in the force, or or you know, acceptance or allowance of that behavior, it's
1: been uh, no. I have not found any overt racism like where they're having like KKK rallies in the in the lobby or anything like that. Because it's underground and they do it very subtle and they think you don't notice. It is as simple as when they miss, they treat me different than they do the uh, the male whites, or they allow somebody to get a, a training opportunity that I asked for first but I don't get it but the male white gets it or we have task force like the task force is involved in this race most recent recent, um, shooting and there's only like five percent black there's only five percent in the whole all the task force that we have there's only like five percent black but the uh, but that's crazy to me so we're not those are opportunities that we're not given because I feel it's our race because there's no reason why we can't be represented fairly on every task force because you got 28% of African-Americans in Columbus. And if you got a task force that all they have is white males on it or white females and they don't have any African-Americans, then they're working with these people forever and they never work with a positive black person. The only time they deal with black people is when they're arresting them. So why not have the demographics reflect what the Columbus makeup is? So because they get to pick and choose, that doesn't happen.
0: Melissa, if you could change one thing that you felt like would really make a huge impact, what would it be?
1: Qualified immunity. If I could change qualified immunity, that would have a ripple effect across the whole country. Because, uh, because officers are, we have qualified immunity, meaning when we do something under the color of our color of law within scope of our employment, we're protected from any private civil suits coming out of our pocket. So you can't touch my house. You can't touch any of my money. So anything that you, the judge says that I'm guilty of, it comes out of taxpayers' funds. It doesn't come out of my pocket. Really? So if we can change that, officers will be more careful what they do because they can affect them personally. It's how just like we, a child. Hmm?
0: How can we change it?
1: Well, it's got to be through legislation. You got to change it through that because it's, um, it's it's law and it's hard. And um, when somebody's first mentioned qualified immunity change, change to change it, if they could do that, that would be a national effect on law enforcement and their behavior. It's going to put them in check because nobody wants their card taken. Right now, they can bust your head and nothing happens to them personally. What do they care if the city has to pay $200,000? It doesn't bother them that that's the case. They, they don't care. But if it coming out their pocket, they would.
0: Our time is almost up. I would like you to tell folks how they can find your book.
1: You can go to amazon.com. And it's the one there, it's 9 dollars um, I put it that price so that people can read it, get it, because I need that exposure. Because the only way we're going to change the division is by exposing their bad behavior. So thank you for having me today. I appreciate you letting me tell my story.
0: Well, listen, I started the book and I'm going to finish it because it's really interesting and it's a it's an easy read. I mean, it flows and it's a thank story, you. an interesting story. So I'm going to finish it. Thank and you. Thank you for speaking out and doing the right thing and let's get qualified immunity so that we don't have any more of these tragedies.
1: Yes. Thank you so much for having me.
0: All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. In addition to our Friday 5 p.m. broadcast on WGRN.org, Grassroot Ohio will now air on Sundays at 2 p.m. on WCRSFM.org, 92.7, 98.3 FM in Columbus and at 4 p.m. on WEJPLP 107.1 FM in Wheeling, Moundsville, West Virginia. You can also find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Grassroot Ohio, 94.1 FM, WGRN.org. We air Friday nights at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and you can listen to all our previous shows archived on the top post of our Grassroot Ohio Facebook page. There's a time to listen and learn, a time to organize and strategize, and a time to stand up, fight back.